Hi there, and welcome to this latest podcast from Cambridge Health Tech Institute for the 2015 BioIT World Conference and Expo, taking place April 21st through the 23rd in Boston, Massachusetts. My name is Anne Wynn, and I'm one of the associate conference producers for the event. Dr. Mark Gerstein, Albert L. Williams Professor of Biomedical Informatics at Yale University, is chatting with us today. He'll be speaking during the session on databases, sharing, and integration in the clinical genomics conference track. Mark, thank you for finding some time for us. How did you come to focus on bioinformatics, and how has your work with applying data science to genomics evolved since you joined Yale in 1997? Well, I focused on bioinformatics, you know, actually from really when I graduated from college. Uh, you know, I, first I was studying physics, and I got really interested in doing that and kind of applying quantitative approaches to the natural world, and that's, of course, what people tend to in physics background. And when I graduated from college, I was looking for kind of a field to get into that was sort of new to being quantified, and this is uh, the late 1980s now, and I drowned a bit, and I got very interested in more biological things, biophysics and so forth, and so that's where I really did my Ph.D., and I did my Ph.D. in England, and I think one of the early people focusing on you know, doing computational things with uh, biological molecules. Now, I started out with, as you probably imagine, a more physical approach. I was very interested in molecular mechanics of um, molecules. I really did a kind of chemistry PhD focusing on things like that. But then when I did my postdoc and when I started as a faculty member, I kind of got more into biological things. And in particular, around that time is when they started sequencing their first uh, genomes, you know, the Haemophilus influenza genome and then the human genome. And I found this very exciting. And so I kind of got into genomics and so I guess over time, I followed along with the field. And so I started out, you know, more as a structural protein-oriented person, and I kind of got more into DNA genomics. And now I'm really into personal genomics and disease genomics and the stuff really kind of paralleling the advent of next-gen sequencing being kind of driving force. Your lab uses networks as a basis for representing, analyzing, and integrating many types of biological data. What's so useful about networks? Well, I think networks are a really great representation, and in a sense, they're a fundamental representation for this emerging area of data science now, where people sort of develop ways of analyzing big data sets and sort of calculations and structures for that. And networks are really useful because you can apply them in many, many different contexts. It's a flexible and abstracted representation, yet at the same time, it really does help people understand things. And I think people find it very useful to sort of see the network representation used in a traditional biological context, but also they can have it applied in another context, and that gives them some insight and intuition. People often make networks of molecules, say molecules where one regulates another one, say a transcription factor regulating a gene or, or maybe two genes that or two protein products that uh, physically interact. And they can analyze these networks, but you know sometimes they don't have that much intuition for them because they're so removed from everyday experience. However, you can construct very similar network diagrams for other things that people maybe have a little bit more intuition for. Obviously, social networks would be the extreme where people have a lot of intuition for them, but there's also things like electrical networks or neural networks and things that people have maybe a little bit more knowledge of. And I think what's neat is to see the same type of calculation applied in two contexts. So one of the initial famous network calculations was the finding of the hubs in networks. They the points with very large connectivity. And you can certainly find these points in molecular networks, but then when you, say, make a comparison to, say, the transport network that we have, and you talk about the airplane networks have 
having hubs, and you also talk about social networks having hubs where people are really connected to lots of other people. It gives people a little bit of intuition about how a hub might function. And the same is true, say, for instance, for another network concept like bottlenecks. Bottlenecks would be particular spots in the network where a lot of shortest paths go through. There's a lot of kind of traffic through them, and people identify these in, you know, say, routine regulatory networks all the time, but again, very low intuition. But when you look at, say, the transport network and you realize a bottleneck might correspond to a major bridge or a major tunnel where there's a lot of traffic being funneled through that, again, you get a lot of intuition. And so I'm particularly enthusiastic about these type of comparisons that people can make. Can you broadly describe some of your lab's progress with analyzing cancer genomes, from identifying and annotating personal genome variants to determining each mutation's impact? So we got into analyzing cancer genomes kind of as an outgrowth to the work we started looking at for personal genomes. And essentially, cancer genomics is one of the most direct applications of personal genomics, a place where it's really quite useful. And in personal genomics, what one tries to do is, in addition to looking at the genome generally, looking at the variants in a particular person. You know, so the average person has three to four million single nucleotide polymorphisms and a few thousand block uh, variants, so structural variants. And people often want to know which of the what those variants do, and some of them have obvious functional aspect. They might hit a gene, or other ones. It's a little hard to see what they're doing. Maybe they change the regulation of genes, and they a factor binding site. And in cancer genomics, what one wants to do is sort of apply that logic, but now one's looking at the cancer genome. And the cancer genome is really the personal genome with the variants from the cancer, the somatic variants. And usually these are considerably less than the number of natural polymorphisms, usually, say, 5,000 or so, which is a bit less, but still a quite a large number to figure out which ones are important, the driver events, and which ones are sort of collateral damage, the passenger events. And the mindset is if you understand which of the, of the alterations are key in the cancer, potentially they could be useful in targeting drugs to the cancer or even designing a treatment for a person. And what we focused on very much is the non-coding mutations. So the bulk of mutations in the personal genome and also the uh, somatic disease mutations in the cancer genome are non-coding. And so we probably know that about only a percent of the genome is the coding genome, and 99 percent, the overwhelming bulk, is the non-coding regions. And most of the mutations in the cancer genome are in this non-coding region, but people haven't focused on them as much because it's harder to understand what they do. And so we've developed ways of trying to interpret them. So we've taken all the somatic mutations and seen if they affect any of the non-coding annotations, such as transcription factor binding sites or non-coding RNAs. And then we have a way of highlighting the factor binding sites and non-coding RNA annotations that are most, maybe most disabling if they're affected. For instance, they would be the hubs in networks, say the regulatory network, or they would be regions in the genome that have very little natural variation in them. So you'd suspect that have a cancer variant would be very deleterious. And so we have a way of prioritizing these non-coding variants and non-coding somatic variants based on the annotation. And then we can take the, say, 5,000 in the cancer genome and highlight the maybe five that we think are having the strongest effect. And that's a you know useful thing where someone can actually take a number like five and test them in the lab and really start to think about what they do. And that's what we've been focusing on for cancer genomics. And we developed a tool a while ago that 
does all this is a computer tool. We call it FunSeq. We've had it now a second version, FunSeq 2, that does this type of prioritization. And the new version of the tool also includes kind of a recurrence analysis. So people usually think if you look at, uh, say, 10 cancers, and you tend to have in those 10 cancers more than you'd expect a mutation hitting this particular non-coding region, it's maybe important. And so we incorporate this recurrence or burden analysis in the newer FunSeq as well as the functional-based prioritization. And that's what we've been focusing on for cancer genomics. I know there's so much more info and data that you could share, and I could tell that you'd love to share it. So we're looking forward to hearing more specifics later at the event. Uh, For now, though, Mark, thank you again for your time. That was Mark Gerstein of Yale. He'll be joining the Clinical Genomics Conference at the upcoming BioIT World Conference and Expo running April 21st through the 23rd in Boston. If you'd like to hear him in person, go to www.bio-itworldexpo.com for registration information and enter the key code podcast. This is Ann Wynn. Thanks for listening.